0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that uh, you have opened yourself to us in the Lord Jesus, in grace and love and truth. And we pray that as we read uh, your scriptures now, so you would write your word on our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, some years ago, when I was president of the EU uh, here at Sydney, a member of the group that I was not particularly close to rang me up. Uh, it was on the weekend, uh, Saturday, it was during summer, so it was nice and warm, it was uh, a delightful day, we had the usual pleasantries, and after we got through the, you know, how are you, yes, I'm well, I'm, how are you, yeah, I'm pretty well, um, he said that he had a prophecy for me, a prophecy not just for me, but about me, from God, uh, that he wanted to tell me. And I kind of ummed and ahed and, uh, uh, okay. And he told me, he said, uh, something to the effect that, that uh, what God wanted to say to me was that I was strong and that God was pleased with me. Uh, I was a little surprised. Uh, you may be surprised that that was the content of the prophecy. I was a little surprised and didn't quite know how to, how to respond, actually, um, I was, I was pleased, I guess, but kind of wondered why God uh, you know, didn't tell me directly, uh, but through this other guy. Anyway, a couple of uh, years later, I was on holiday up north and went to an Anglican church. Uh, up there, I used to go to an Anglican church. I still go to an Anglican church. I'm an Anglican minister. And you, you know, the deal is that they, you do the same thing everywhere. That's why they're so boring, actually. Um, you do the same thing everywhere so that you're always going to feel at home. So I was really looking forward to feeling at home at this church. And everything was just going along swimmingly, right? It was all very cool. And then the prayer time started. And suddenly, everyone started speaking or or, or sort of speaking, um, more like making a noise. What they were doing, actually, was speaking in tongues. And it was like uh, those movies of, uh, you know, Indian um, markets or bazaars, just a lot of people making a lot of noise noise everywhere, and it was crazy, and I'm looking around and wondering when, you know, who's going to lead in the prayer from the prayer book here? What's going on? We're Anglicans. (laughs) Well, welcome to the wild and woolly world of prophecy and tongues, or at least some of the ways that I've uh, experienced those things. Uh, In our series through 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13 and 14, as we've continued on 1 Corinthians from the beginning of the semester, Uh, We've finally hit the ground. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, he gets to the point where he deals concretely and specifically with the problems and issues in their church. He's got two things to say, and he brings together the two things that he's uh, been uh, uh, putting before the Corinthians for these last two chapters. Chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts or literally the spiritual things. Pursue love. That's chapter 13. If you want to sum up chapter 13 in two words, it's that, pursue love. And strive for the spiritual things. That's chapter 12. It's not one without the other. It's not strive for the spiritual gifts and forget about love and just use your gifts, not, not for loving purposes, but for building yourself up or building your own ego or steamrolling people or something like that. Nor is it the other way around as well, that is, go for love without the spiritual gifts. That's not adequate either. That leaves gaps and holes which need to be filled. And so what the Apostle says is pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, for the spiritual things. And then he adds a writer on the end of the verse, and especially that you may prophesy, which he goes on to contrast with speaking in tongues. And that begins a chapter that uh, Paul gives a whole deal of instructions to the people about how things are to be handled, how the spiritual things, in particular how the spiritual gifts, how gifts are to be handled when we meet together as a body of Christ's community, as the church. And he gets quite specific about their situation. Of course, the more specific he gets about them, the less specific he gets about us, the more remote he gets to us uh, in some ways. And so we need to work hard to get to the principles that underlie what he says. Uh, I just want to make a fairly straightforward uh, analysis of 1 Corinthians 14. Firstly, what are the gifts? And then secondly, uh, the two principles that are there um, uh, in order to uh, use those gifts properly. Firstly, then, what are the gifts? What are these gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues? Well, this is one of those areas of biblical study where there are almost as many views as there are view holders. And so uh, what I want to do is, therefore, fairly straightforwardly, Uh, speak to you from the text and just tell you what the Bible says. It goes like this. Firstly, speaking or praying in tongues. Uh, There are five elements to biblical speaking in tongues. One, it's a spirit-inspired utterance. It's a spirit-inspired utterance. That's clear from chapter 12, verse 10, where in the list of examples of gifts, Paul says, to another various kinds of tongues, and implied is, given by the one spirit. Or likewise, in chapter 14, verse 2, he says, they're speaking mysteries in the Spirit. One implication I think here uh, is clear. Whatever your experience of speaking in tongues, and you may be on the very pro side or on the very anti side, whatever your experience of speaking in tongues or of people who speak in tongues, whatever you do, be careful about being dismissive of this. Since what you're doing is dismissing the work of God. This is the work of the Spirit, speaking in tongues. Throughout this material, Paul doesn't damn the gift of tongues or people who speak in tongues with faint praise, nor does he stand in awe of the gift either, by the way. He just has it in its proper place. It's a gift of the Spirit. Secondly, the speaker is not in ecstasy or out of control. The regulations of verses 27 and 28 of chapter 14 show this, where he instructs the tongue speakers to regulate how many of them speak, and only one one at a time, uh, to speak. And it means that the speakers are under control and to not speak if there's no one to interpret. Uh, I had a, f- a friend at uni uh, a few years ago, several years ago now, uh, who told me that uh, she would often be sitting at the back of her lectures. And uh, she, was, she was one of these happy kind of people. And um, so she, would just, she didn't pay much attention to her lectures, actually. Uh, but she'd be sitting at the back of her lectures and she would get a tongues attack, she would say. And this would be of some surprise to those sitting around her, and it was a particularly loud tongues attack of some surprise to her lecturer, as in the middle of the lecture, she would just burst out in an uncontrolled manner speaking in tongues. Um, I don't know what that was, but it wasn't biblical. Okay? I don't know what that was, but it wasn't biblical, because speaking in tongues is not an ecstatic or out-of-control experience. It's an experience that is in, within your control, Um, Paul says that the mind is detached from uh, uh, when you speak in tongues. It's at rest, and therefore it's not fruitful in terms of understanding. We'll come to that uh, shortly. But it is able to control what happens. Speaking in tongues is not an ecstatic, out-of-control experience, according to the Bible. Thirdly, it's speech that is essentially unintelligible to the speaker. Uh, Paul says that the mind is unproductive when speaking in tongues, verse 14. Not only that, it's unintelligible to the hearers. And so if it's going to be uh, used as a gift in the assembly, in the ecclesia, in the church gathering, it has to be interpreted. Uh, At the same time, it's probably not another human language. Uh, I'm Hungarian, and uh, I could have come in here and spoken Hungarian to you if I knew it, Um, if my dad had taught me when I was about knee high. Uh, But he didn't, and so I'm not. But even if I did, that would be pretty useless for you. Uh, But that wouldn't be speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is probably not another human language, although Paul talks about it uh, in all likelihood as something like the language of angels. So it's not mere sort of gibberish nonsense, just nonsense syllables uh, put together, and it has some content to it in order for it to be interpreted. Um, Once again, uh, if it means something, then it means that thing. And so speaking in tongues which are interpreted in two entirely different ways, uh, again, is a nonsense. It it means something and so it means that thing and needs a gift of interpretation to to understand that. This is in contrast to the speaking in tongues which takes place in Acts chapter two, you may know, uh, at the day of Pentecost when the spirit is poured out and they speak in tongues. And what that means is that the crowd who's gathered there from many different nations are able to understand the gospel in their own language. I think that's different from what's in view here in 1 Corinthians 14. Fourthly, it's speech that is basically directed to God. Verse 2, for those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people but to God, for nobody understands them since they are speaking mysteries in the spirit. Notice this again. This is very important. What it means is that if it is interpreted, if the tongues are interpreted, what is interpreted is not God's speech to other people. Okay? It's not God's speech to other people which is then interpreted so the other people can understand what God is saying to them. It's mystery spoken in the spirit. That is, what people say to God. So the idea of some kind of uh, word from God or prophecy from God coming via speaking in tongues, which needs to be interpreted so that then people understand it, that's just not biblical. That's not what speaking in tongues is according to the Bible. Speaking in tongues is us speaking to God. And that can be uh, of good use. Uh, particularly for the individual, uh, which is the fifth point. It's a gift for private prayer that speaks up, uh, builds up the speaker. Verse 4, those who speak in a tongue build up themselves. It's held in high regard by the apostle. There's more to being built up than cognitive stuff because your brain is unfruitful while you're speaking in tongues. It builds up the, the, the speaker. It's just not great for the others. Okay, all clear on what speaking in tongues is. And in particular, what speaking in tongues is not. Secondly, prophecy. That's the other big gift that was majored on in uh, the Corinthian church. Uh, this is the most commonly referred to gift by the apostle in uh, probably seven of his letters. Also, five features. Firstly, it is from God too. It is from God. 1 Corinthians 12, chapter, 10 again, uh, chapter 12, verse 10 again. To another is given the gift of prophecy, also by the one spirit. Secondly, it's spoken to the people rather than to God and therefore, and this is crucial, it's intelligible. It's able to be understood. You see that in verse 3 of chapter 14. On the other hand, those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Uh, Which you see also then the third point, that is, the purpose and effect of prophecy is for building up. For building up others. In contrast to Tongues speaking, which builds up oneself. Uh, Fourthly, sometimes at least it seems to be spontaneous. Uh, You see in verses 29 to 31, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby, then let the first person be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Someone speaking a prophecy Someone else gets a revelation while they're speaking that prophecy. If they stand up. The other one sits down. It's a bit like the carpet. You know, you push the bubble down here. It goes up there. Not two up at the same time. Just one by one, do your thing. And yet it's still in control of the prophet. We're not talking about an ecstatic experience again. And fifthly, and perhaps most importantly, uh, prophecy, according to Paul, does not have independent authority. It does not have the status of divine revelation but must, must be tested by the community. You see this also in uh, other places where he addresses this issue. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 to 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 to 22. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, where the gift of the discernment of spirits is mentioned. And likewise, he regards prophets as being under his authority and their prophecies in chapter 14 and verse 37. What this means is that we need to distinguish Old Testament prophets from New Testament prophets and Old Testament prophecy from New Testament prophecy. In the Old Testament, uh, the prophets said, thus says the Lord. And if you rejected their prophecy, then you were rejecting the Lord, God, who gave them and spoke through them. In the New Testament, that place is taken of thus says the Lord, especially and firstly by the Lord Jesus himself, the word of God, who could say, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you, and then go on and outline what God says. And secondly, by the apostles, um, at the end of the chapter, Paul writes, "What I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord." I mean, that, that's that's he's not pulling any punches right there. Uh, what I'm writing to you as an apostle is a command of the Lord. What some prophet says, well, that's all well and good, but it's subject to what I say as an apostle writing the commands of the Lord. I'm saying one of the keys to a proper understanding and use. Of biblical prophecy is to accord it a place that's above wise human words. It, it's more than just stuff that's useful and makes sense and sounds good, but is less than divinely inspired authoritative revelation. Uh, if you treat prophecy as merely this or all of that, then you'll find yourself in trouble. Then you'll find yourself in trouble. No, prophecy falls into the camp neither of just human speech nor divinely inspired word of God but somewhere in the middle, somewhere between. And what the Apostle says, now that we understand a little bit about what speaking in tongues and prophecy is, what the Apostle says is, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. Or again, verse 5, Now I would like all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. I take it that these gifts are available to people today. There's no reason to think that these gifts are not available by, as the Spirit chooses to give people uh, to people today. Uh, the uh, cessationist point of view, you may have heard from 1 Corinthians uh, 13, which says, uh, these things will pass away when the perfect comes, applies, I don't believe, to the Bible, the, when the Bible comes, but when Jesus comes. And since Jesus hasn't come, uh, these gifts are still available to people. I have friends who prophesy, I have friends who speak in tongues. So I take it that these gifts are perfectly available to people uh, today, and what the Apostle says is that he's happy for everyone to uh, uh, speak in tongues, but he has a preference for prophesying. And the reason for that is that prophecy builds up. Prophecy builds up. Building up, of course, is the expression of love. A concern for building people up is a, a concern out of love, namely, The thing that drives chapter 14 is chapter 13. There's a direct link between the two. Um, Building up has been a principle throughout uh, 1 Corinthians, actually, in chapter 8 on the food offered to idols issues. It started out uh, with exactly the same principle. Knowledge puffs up, but love... Do you know what it says? Builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Later on in chapter 10, on the same issue, he says... All things are lawful, but not all things build up. If you're soaked in chapter 13, okay, if you're soaked in 1 Corinthians 13, then what you'll want to do is build people up. Have gifts that are constructive for people. And when your gifts aren't constructive for people and when they don't build up, like speaking in tongues, then what you'll do, incredibly though it may seem, what you'll do is you'll constrain your freedom you'll constrain your freedom and, and exercise your giftedness in particular ways, in constrained ways, for the sake of others and what is constructive for them. That's a very important principle. Well, let's look at the two uh, principles then which govern uh, the use of uh, these gifts and in particular which direct, uh, are directed towards building up. The first is the principle of intelligibility. Verse 6, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you in some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? The, The issue is what is actually of benefit to people, someone coming to them speaking in tongues or someone who can actually make a contribution to them and their understanding, perhaps a prophecy that comes by way of revelation or teaching that comes out of the speaker's knowledge. Uh, He goes on and gives an example. He says, it's like that even when it comes to what he calls lifeless things that produce sound, musical instruments, perhaps for orchestral purposes or for military purposes. The bugle is his example. He says, unless you understand it, unless it's intelligible, unless you understand it, it's useless, just like speaking in tongues at church. That's the point he makes in verses 7 and 9. Same point in verses 10 to 12. There are doubtless many different kinds of sounds in the world, I think referring to different languages, and nothing is without sound. If then I do not know the meaning of a sound, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm uh, Hungarian by extraction and uh, Uh, Well, it's a pity, but my father didn't teach me Hungarian. But had he done so, and had I come in here speaking Hungarian, which can I tell you is a completely stupid language, Um, it has uh, no relation to any other language really going except, I think, ancient Icelandic, Um, and is spoken therefore by a couple of million people in the world, and is basically useless. Many Cs and Zs together, Okay, I mean, I'm a Hungarian, so I'm just insulting myself. Um, If I were to come in here and speak Hungarian, I would be to you a barbarian is the word, literally, not a foreigner. Uh, behind the word foreigner, a barbarian, which is one of those onomatopoeic words, uh, you know, those words that get their meaning from what they sound like. All I'd be saying is kind of a ba 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 which may actually be what you hear right now. I'd be a foreigner to you, and it would be a total waste of time, wouldn't it, to speak like that Hungarian? Does anyone speak Hungarian here? Actually, you do. Oh. <laughs> Does anyone? You see, no one does. That will be useless. Actually, I've had an experience like this. I went to uh, the cathedral uh, in Paris, uh, Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, if you're from the United States. Uh, and the person leading the sermons and uh, who gave the sermon spoke um, each sentence, first in French, then in German, and then in Italian, which was a pretty impressive performance, although frankly, completely lost on me since I don't speak any of them. But it was just, he was a barbarian to me. He just went ba ba-ba. And that's all I got out of the service. And the conclusion Paul says is: well, look, since you're keen for the spiritual gifts, you're keen for the spirits, major on those which are actually useful for people and build the church. And what it does is in the next two paragraphs, he takes that and applies it to two groups: firstly, believers, and then secondly, unbelievers. Paul says. Don't speak in church, don't pray in tongues, uninterpreted. Otherwise, verse 16, if you say a blessing with the Spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say the amen to your thanksgiving? Since the outsider does not know what you are saying, for you may uh, may give thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. Uh, The word for outsider here literally is idiotes or idiot. And at first glance, it looks like he's talking about non-Christians. But but it's a word that gets its meaning from its context. You know, who an idiot is, it depends on who they're standing next to. And um, since the person's expected to say the amen, I think it's a Christian who's in view here. What he's saying is if you speak uninterpreted in tongues, then everyone else is excluded, and, and the effect is that you make everyone else an idiot. You make them an idiot. That's fine for you, I guess, but the other person is left on the outside. And so Paul says, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let me say that there is no stronger endorsement of the gift of speaking privately in tongues than this verse, is there? I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you says the Apostle. He does it and he's glad of it. And at the same time, there's no more scathing rejection of publicly speaking in tongues without interpretation. Um, I I think it's fascinating that you find out here that the the Apostle Paul out-tongued them all. If I can put it like that. He out-tongued them all. You wouldn't know that, would you? Apart from this passage. If you didn't have this paragraph, you wouldn't know that from all his other letters. He speaks in tongues more than all of them. And yet he just—that's just—he doesn't—he doesn't brag about it, doesn't write about it, doesn't sort of drop it in, you know, party conversation. He doesn't. just—that's just one of those things for him. And he's thankful to God, but as thankful to God as he is for it, he would rather speak five useful words, five words with his mind, than ten thousand words with a tongue. Now, ten thousand doesn't mean that um, he'd sort of trade—you know—think about trading for 9,999. 10,000 is just the biggest w- number they had in the ancient world. It just means literally myriads. It's kind of like when my son, Miles, was four. Uh, he, he used to talk about how much chocolate he would like. He would like so, so, lots, 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 lots chocolate. Right? That just meant as much as the kitchen could hold. That's how much chocolate. And he says, you can speak as much as you like in tongues. I, I'll trade all of that for five intelligent words. Five. Five. Speaking in tongues in the corporate gathering without interpreting is useless. So don't do it. Well, he applies it to unbelievers. There's more to building the church than believers, of course. There may well be unbelievers in church and you need to build them in, just as you need to build unbelievers up. And, uh, and so he says, um, when it comes to unbelievers that it's not much use either. Verse 21, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, yet even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's a quote from Isaiah 28. And uh, this speaking to people in Corinth in tongues and them not listening, these unbelievers, uh, that is a fulfilment of Isaiah 28. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? In other words, what the apostle is saying is that you want for people to think that God is powerfully at work among you, that's not going to be by speaking in tongues as you immaturely think, he says. Tongues are a sign not for you believers but for unbelievers. It's a sign which effectively excludes them like it says in Isaiah 28, so don't do it because what we're not into is excluding unbelievers. Don't do it. Rather, the sign that God is powerfully at work is prophecy, and especially when it makes the kind of impact that's described here, verse 24, But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider who enters is reproved by all and called to account by all, and after the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worship him, declaring God is really among you. Now that's a great outcome for unbelievers, isn't it? They bow down and worship and declare... God is really among you. Well, that's the first principle, intelligibility. The second one is uh, similar, directed towards the same goal, that people will be built up. Verse 26. What should be done then, my friends? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Then he gives the instructions. He concludes this in verse 39. So, my friends, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The second principle, intelligibility is the first principle. The second principle is that all things should be done decently and in order. That's what's going to build people up. That's how we're to conduct ourselves when we gather together, not a mess, not a chaos, not a rabble, decently and in order. You can feel the distinction there, can't you? Be eager to prophesy, very positive about that, very keen, very enthusiastic because it builds up, but with respect to tongues, the best that can be said is, don't forbid it. You know, don't forbid it, it's okay. Unless of course it's uninterpreted, in which case it is forbidden, but don't forbid it. And the principle that governs the whole thing is, do everything decently and in order. And then he's got some nitty gritty details about how that's gonna pan out. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or three the most, and each in turn, and let one interpret, but if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. That's pretty plain. We're aware of that by now. Likewise, prophecy, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby, let the first one be silent, for we can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. What's more, interesting, uh, this process of weighing and of stopping and all that kind of stuff for the sake of order... All gets a bit heavy. Paul doesn't say, oh, look, this is just a good pragmatic rule. He says um, he grounds this principle of order, and in particular the ability of the prophets to control themselves and conform to these uh, instructions, in the reality that God himself is a lover of order. You see, verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. This is what God is like. God is not a rabble. God is not kind of chaos. God likes order and peace. That's what God is into. So when we gather together, that's how we we need to be, ordered and peaceful. At which point Paul has a brain explosion, or at least applies this text in a very particular way. Verse 33b, As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything that is desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Uh, now, there's a lot there. Uh, you may have come across this passage before. You may not, in which case you need to take a few deep breaths. Um, there's a lot in that text. And in the next five minutes, I'm going to make it all perfectly obvious um, maybe. Uh, I'll tell you one thing I plan to do, or at least don't plan to do, and that's cut them out. Uh, there's a very fine evangelical Bible uh, commentator who at this point with this text goes a bit weak at the knees, gets out his scissors, and on textual ground says, look, this wasn't in the original text, let's just chop it out, and that gets aside the problem. Uh, it does get aside the problem, but I think it's kind of out of the fat and into the fire, because once you start taking scissors to your Bible, then you're in some trouble. Um, at the same time, so I'm not going to do that we're going to deal with these uh, passage and I think it makes sense in its context and I'm going to explain it to you as best I can let me say also I'm not defensive or ashamed about it um, we're to be people who love the Lord and if we love the Lord that means we love the scriptures that he's given us and our task is not to kind of be grumbly and complaining as the Israelites were in the wilderness right that's why their example is there for us to show us not to grumble and not to complain, not to squirm and wriggle and try and find our way around it. Now, our task is to discern the scriptures, understand what they teach, and wholeheartedly embrace that. So if you've got an attitude issue going here, then you need to make sure you sort that out first. You love Jesus? Well, you love his word. And you do what you, just, you have an a priori submission to it. Okay, let's try and be clear what's not being said. Okay, first, what's not being said. The first thing that is not being said is an absolute prohibition on women opening their mouths and letting wind pass across their vocal cords while church is on. Um, Only three chapters ago, he gave instructions about how wives would prophesy and pray in church. And unless you think Paul is a complete idiotase, who would so blatantly contradict himself in the space of just a few chapters, a few pages then what you've got here is not an absolute prohibition on women speaking in church. The silence is a relative silence. That's what he's talking about. Notice I refer to wives. The same Greek word for woman uh, is the same as the word for wife. They just use them interchangeably. And for man and for husband. I think what's on view here is wives and husbands because of the reference about asking their man at home. Asking, which I think is an obvious reference to their husband. So what we're talking about is relations, particularly between wives and husbands, Specifically, not women and men generally. So firstly, this is not an absolute prohibition on women speaking in church. Uh, I think that's perfectly clear. Uh, Secondly, the wives mentioned here are not the only ones who are commanded to be silent. Those who speak uninterpreted in tongues are meant to be silent. Likewise, those who prophesy and someone else stands up, you've got to be silent too. In other words, silence is neither a prohibition absolutely on wives, nor is it a prohibition exclusive to wives. Okay, so just kind of unfolding this a little bit, it's not quite as oppressive as you might think or feel. Thirdly, at the same time, this is not addressing an issue that was specific to Corinth, as some have suggested. They say, well, look, this is just a, this is a deal that was going on in Corinth, therefore it's applicable only to Corinth and happily doesn't apply to us. You know, maybe they had a particularly feisty bunch of women. They're sort of all like Caroline Andrews, and they were just aggro and loud and rude. And they just put their... No, not like Caroline Andrews. I love her dearly. Um, uh, you know what I mean? They're a particularly feisty group of women. And so Paul's telling them to shut up, uh, but it's specific to them. No. Paul says this is the case in all the churches of the saints and across the cultures of all of those churches. And he backs this comment up with stinging rhetorical questions. Verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? No. Are you the only ones it's reached? No. So don't go off and do your own thing. Well, that's what it's not about. What is it about? I think the context here is the interpretation of prophecy. And it seems to me that other than that, these words make little sense. In other words, I think the content, the substance of what is being prohibited to wives here. Is participating in the weighing up that's mentioned in verse 29, and you get that impression, I think, uh, confirmed in verse 35. If there is anything that they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. That is, instead of weighing it up at church, what they're to do is weigh it up at home. Paul bases this uh, on the authority of the Scriptures the Old Testament law, which normally is generally the Old Testament, but I think particularly has in mind here the order of relationship between a husband and a wife that's set out in Genesis chapter 2. At least that's the passage that he consistently refers to in the Old Testament law when discussing this same issue, say in 1 Corinthians 11 or in 1 Timothy 2. And the basis of all of that is the fact that a wife is to be subordinate to a husband. The word subordinate here is uh, in Greek, hupo, tasso, which means, hupo means um, under, and tasso means order, so it means under-ordered or under is the same as sub, so sub-ordered or subordinate, to submit, which has a whole lot of uh, negative connotations now, I understand. Let me say, that is the consistent pattern of Christian marriage that's set out in the Scriptures. Submission of wives and the headship of husbands of their wives, not of their household, Husbands aren't head of the house, they're head of their wife. This is not a talk about headship and submission. It's a talk about how we do church. But notice, Paul says the two are linked to each other. What we do in church mustn't be corrosive for the Christian pattern of marriage. Let me say headship and submission, which is consistently the Christian pattern of marriage, has almost nothing to do with final decision-making authority. Uh, If you check out... uh, Proverbs chapter 31, you see uh, the woman of great uh, value, the sort of ideal wife to marry the ideal prince who is being addressed in the Proverbs. And this is a high-powered woman, right? This is Proverbs 31, she's, she's running the farm. She runs the joint. The husband does all he's good for, which is down at the pub talking. Um, he's down at the pub talking about the law, theology, you know, all sorts of deep things, blah, blah, blah. While she gets on, she runs a business. She does extensions on the house. She organizes the finances. She takes out loans. You know, here's a high-powered woman. So I don't think headship and submission has got to do with decision-making. It's not got to do with domestic role allocation. It's not got to do with violent authoritarianism, certainly. This principle of Christian marriage, which informs how we do church for each other, is about loving, sacrificial, like Christ loved the church leadership, an initiative taking. That's headship. And, and submission to that is to respond and not just respond, but welcome and receive and encourage that leadership of love. The point that Paul's making here is that for wives to participate in the weighing up of prophecy, in that context, transgressed the boundary and brought disgrace on their husbands and created a breach of order. That's why it's here in this passage. I'm saying, I think the same principle applies now, though I doubt whether the same activity would lead to the same disgrace. Mind you, I can think of one that would. Uh, if you're a wife and you get all dressed up, you get bright red lipstick and your hair done, and you know, and you wear a very short crop top and a very tight skirt and high heels and you stand up with a, uh, against a wall with your, with your knee up and a handbag and you start swinging around like this, right? You know what you're looking like, don't you? And everyone else knows what you're looking like. And what does that say about you and your husband? It brings disgrace on him. He's your head. Don't do it. Don't do it. You see what I'm doing there? Same principle. But because we're in a different context, it'll work out in different ways. I'm saying that's what the Apostle says. He says, do church in an ordered way, and part of that will include to support the order of Christian marriage. Well, look, we're running out of time, and I need to uh, close and draw some conclusions. Let me say a couple of things. Firstly, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian here today, can I humbly but in the name of the living God call on you to recognise that God is really here among us. We're not just a group of people, us Christians, who get together because we happen to have something in common that we enjoy and get off on. No, the most important person here is the one that you can't see. It's the living God who is present amongst us, who has gifted us in these very different ways. Who loved the world to the point of giving up his own son, loved you to the point of giving up his own son for you. And will you bow down, I ask you, will you bow down and worship and recognise this one as one to whom you're accountable and who offers you forgiveness? Um, If you've been hanging around Christians for a while and you sense that there's something there, well, you're right. It's God. And he wants to deal with you. Secondly, though, if you are a Christian, let me say, strive for the spiritual gifts. Strive for the spiritual gifts, including prophecy and perhaps even that you speak in tongues. These gifts are available to you, available to you in the sense that you can ask for them and if God wills and chooses, then he'll give them to you. Um, I don't know whether you've ever thought to strive, which is a word about sweat and energy and effort, whether you've ever thought to strive for anything in regard to church. Perhaps for you, Christian uh, faith and life has been pretty airy-fairy you know, you go along to stuff and you pray some stuff and you read some ideas. And but church is pretty concrete. And I'm saying what the apostle wants from us is to strive for the gifts that build up the church, to sweat for the church, to sweat to build up other Christians. And I think we can broaden out from prophecy and speaking in tongues to the other gifts that build people up. Teaching people and getting alongside people and speaking words of comfort to them and administering the affairs of the church and so on you strive by praying but you strive also by just ordinary stuff like training courses and books and programs or just practicing but whatever you do with your gifts they're not for you they're for others they're to build up they're to build up others and just because you have a gift doesn't mean you have some right to participate No, no, no. Participation is only a secondary goal in our church life together. The expression of my giftedness. The primary goal is building up. So I'm saying cultivate a zeal. Cultivate a zeal in your own hearts for the building up of God's people here at Sydney Union in your church. Want for Christians to be built up. That's what what drives the apostle here. That's what drives God. Want for Christians to be built up. And want for unbelievers as we meet in the power and reality of God as he's with us by his spirit, want for them to fall down and worship and say, God is really amongst us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that as the ascended and risen Lord, you give gifts to your people. And we pray that you would continue to pour out your grace on us and gift us in remarkable ways. We pray that you would make us the kind of people who can handle that gifting. Handle it so that we don't use it for our own self-assertion uh, and ego, but only for the good of others to build them up. And we pray it in your own great sake. Amen. Uh, Andrew will be around the front here if you have any questions to ask him. Uh, or he'll probably be out after afternoon tea as well. Uh, can I remind you once more that National Training Event and Club badge registrations are closing fast and so go out there and register and I'll meet you all out there at afternoon tea.